that is the sound of the Medics Money financial bleep going off, which means we have another Medics Money podcast listener whose financial ailments we are going to diagnose and treat on today's podcast. And today's we discuss the case of Richard, who trained in the UK as a gastroenterologist and moved to Canada, but still practices occasionally in the UK. This raises all kinds of complex tax residency questions, IR35, limited company, and this will be useful to anyone who's working abroad. Uh, and also, hopefully, it'll be useful for international medical graduates who come to the UK to work. So inevitably, we also talk about the pros and cons of working in Canada, the pay, and ultimately, we find out why Richard isn't coming back to the UK. So hopefully, this is useful to a wide spectrum of people. Uh, as ever, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute any form of financial or tax advice. And I always recommend you to take your own advice specific to your own situation. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins, and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome not one, not two, but three guests, because today's scenario is pretty niche, but something that we get asked increasingly about working abroad and the tax implications of that. So Richard, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on, Tommy. So uh, I'm Richard. I'm a gastroenterologist trained in the UK. And then I did a post-CTT fellowship for the last couple of years in Canada. Awesome. And I'm back, 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 or delighted to be back a bit around the pandemic for uh, hopefully some work in the UK as well. Yeah, good to have you back. And uh, we're definitely going to catch up about working in the can Canada uh, later on in the podcast. But uh, this is a pretty complex tax scenario. So we've got not just one, but two tax specialists with us today. So tax specialists, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Tommy, for having us on. Um, my name is Scott Walker. I am the tax manager here at uh, BW Medical Accountants in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Um, we're a specialist niche medical accountancy firm. Um, that deals uh, only with the medical professionals. Uh, we don't deal with any other trade. This is this is our bag, if you like. Um, we are a member of the Association of Independent Specialist Medical Advisors. Um, that's essentially a congregation of uh, medical specialists throughout the UK who uh, kind of, for want of a better term, uh, meet up annually, or not at the moment, but normally meet up annually to discuss, you know, the affairs of the day. Uh, we deal um, with the partnership and corporate accounts of medical practices. Um, we have uh, a personal and corporate tax department, which uh, myself and Rob, my colleague, are um, key members, or I like to think so anyway. Um, and finally, we have a specialist NHS pension team um, that deals with the complexities of the NHS pension system and also annual allowance tax charges and lifetime allowance tax charges. Uh, we have over 100 medical practices at the moment, and we act for 1,500 or so um, healthcare professionals on top of that as well. Awesome. Hi, Tommy. Thanks Thanks again for having us on. Um, I'm Rob again, one of the tax managers here at BW. Um, I have got some experience in international tax, 
having worked at some of the uh, big four firms in my previous life, but fancy the change and uh, fancy going into medical, uh, the medical um, background, if you so to speak. Um, and yes, what Scott said, basically. Perfect. Yeah. BW also found the members of Medics Money, and we really appreciate having your expertise and support on board the Medics Money Network. So, Richard, I mean, your query is pretty niche, but something that which we see more and more now. Um, so do you want to just tell us, I'm always interested, how did you find Medics Money? And um, let's take it from there. Yeah, sure. So I don't remember Medics Money being around in the past. So I was just doing some Google searches and trying to find, find information and came across the site, um, the blog. And then I guess I've listened to podcasts and stuff more since, but that, that's kind of where it was. It, it links you to or different, well, can lead you to different either accountants or um, kind of financial planners. So I just reached out through that to, yeah, to try and get the advice I needed, really. Awesome. Cool. Um, so I'm going to read what you sent us, Richard, because um, that's going to help us to help everyone else. So uh, you said your website is great. Thanks. Uh, I'm a tax resident in Canada and now not tax resident in the UK. I expect to be able to remain non-resident in the UK and do occasional locum hospital consultant work. I'm well versed in SRT and I've done HMRC individual self-employment returns for 18 years. In 2020, I ended up paying 30% tax in Canada for directly employed locums with two hospital trusts with credit for UK tax paid. I'm wondering if setting up a limited company would mean such income is treated as independent professional services under the double taxation agreement. Uh, Articles 7 and 14 seem the most relevant. IR35 would likely apply, uh, but this is a problem as my goal is to avoid additional Canadian. Sorry, that's not a problem because my goal is to avoid additional Canadian tax, not UK taxes. Do you have any experiences or anyone that you'd recommend? I expect there's quite a few doctors who work internationally, but I found limited general information online. So um, pretty niche, like I said, but I think this is going to help a lot of people. So um, Scott and Robert, shall we talk about the, can you give me an idea of the circumstances where someone is deemed to be an automatic UK resident? Yeah, so residency, as with all things UK, taxation specifically are um, quite a grey area, shall we say. And um it's something that people need to seek specialist advice on because it can't just be determined on one person's circumstances. You know, everyone's circumstances are different and that is going to affect their residency status and therefore their tax status in the UK. There is one kind of under underlying question for whether or not people are going to um, be resident in the UK and that's probably something people are familiar with, which is the 183-day rule. Um, if you have spent 183 days in the UK in a tax year, you are automatically deemed to be a UK resident for tax purposes. Um, and as such, you will be taxed on your worldwide income. Now, you are given a credit uh, for any foreign taxes paid um, when, when dealing with your UK tax affairs. Um, but the one thing we're going to talk about a bit later is the statutory residency tests. Now, the statutory residency tests are complex and do need a, a bit of kind of reshuffling. But the ultimate point being, if you've got 183 days in the UK, then you are UK resident. And the overseas tests almost become irrelevance to you in that scenario. But obviously, we're going to look at the situations whereby uh, you've been in the UK for less than 183 days. Yeah, because Richard has been here for less than 183 days, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Cool. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you mentioned it briefly there, but what about the automatic overseas residency test? Do we need to talk about that? Certainly do. Yes, Tommy. Um, okay. The overseas uh, automatic overseas residency test is three tests that you've um, different tests that you've got to uh, fulfil. Okay. So the first automatic overseas residency test is where you're an automatic non-UK resident, which basically means you only get taxed on your UK earnings, not your worldwide earnings. Okay. So the first test we're going to look at is if you were a resident in the UK for any one of the previous ta- three tax years. So we're in the tax year 21, 22 at the moment. So that means 18, 19, 19, 20, and 2021. 20, so if you were a resident for one of those uh, years and you spent less than 16 days in the UK, you're an automatic non-UK resident. Okay. Um, test number two, um, it's a bit, it's a bit easier. Um, you're a non-resident if you were not in the UK for any of the previous tax years. So if you're like a, a long-term overseas resident and you spent fewer than 46 days in the UK for that tax year, for that one tax year. And as everybody knows, the tax year in the UK runs from April the 6th to April the 5th the following year. Now, the third automatic overseas test is a little bit more complicated. It's to do with full-time work overseas. Okay, so you need to spend less than 91 days in the UK in that tax year and have no significant breaks from your overseas work. So they're the three automatic overseas tests that make you non-UK resident. Wow. So, yeah, this is already getting pretty complex, but I think it's going to be useful for so many people because lots of doctors, you know, come to and fro the UK, uh, international medical graduates, and people may go to Australia for part of the year, et cetera, like Richard. So this is super useful, even though it's pretty complicated stuff. So what would happen if you don't meet any of the overseas tests? What what happens then? Okay. If, if you don't meet any of the overseas tests, we look at the automatic UK tests, okay? So we Scott touched on that before, where you were an automatic resident if you were in the UK for more than 183 days. No, there's no point in looking at anything else. You're automatically a UK resident. Yeah. Um, again, there's three tests here. Um, the second test of that is if you've got a UK home for which you spent at least 30 days present in that home, okay? And you have to have own that home for 91 consecutive days. And the third automatic UK test is a bit of an obvious one. If you work full-time in the UK, okay? So that makes you a, a, an automatic UK resident. Awesome, yeah. Um, I think as well, Richard lives or as visiting Jersey as well, which is another whole tax jurisdiction in itself, which thankfully we're not talking about on today's podcast because that was... <laughs> My head would literally explode. Um, so this is great. So what about splitting the tax year between periods of residency and non-residency? Okay, again, as, as Scott alluded to before, this is an extremely complex area of uh, uh, taxation. Okay, so if you're going to think about if you're leaving the UK or coming to the UK, it's best to seek advice of a, a qualified um, accountant or tax advisor to, to get some advice on this. Basically, there's eight cases. Case one to three is if you're coming to the UK. Okay, so you would look at each case's um, starting in numerical order. So you look if you look at case one, case two, and case three. So if you're leaving the UK and starting um, work full time overseas, 
And that's uh, case one. Case two is if your partner's um, starting full-time work overseas. And case three is if you're ceasing to have a home in the UK. As, as I alluded to before, you move through cases in priority. And that basically determines whether you can split the, the year into periods of residency and non-residency. So some of the year you can just be taxed on your UK income and part of the year you, you might have to consider your overseas income as well. And so the purpose of that would be to avoid paying, like to avoid double taxation effectively. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and what about remittance basis? That's something that we need to talk about as well, I think. Yes. Remittance basis is, again, uh, it's, it only relates to people who are classed as non-domiciled UK individuals. Okay. And it's it's basically when you have the option to get taxed on the money that you remit to the UK. Um, but when you opt for the remittance basis, you can lose entitlement to your personal allowance and your capital gains tax allowance. Yeah. So it okay. Is, it is uh, again seek the seek the uh, seek a professional to give you a to give you a hand through that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this is super complex. But so let's get back then to Richard's situation because Richard did mention about setting up a limited company, um, whether that would work, and he identified a few issues with that as well. Um, so, what are the pros and cons of a limited company setup? Okay, in in general terms, um, the pros of having a limited company is tax efficiency in terms of tax planning. Okay, so you can. The, basically, the, the company is a separate entity. So the money gets, all the income gets paid to the company, which is a separate entity altogether, almost a, a separate individual. So the money goes into the company and then you get taxed on the money as an individual when you draw money out of the company in form of a dividend. Okay. So there is a greater spectrum of tax planning when you have a limited company. A limited company also offers limited liability as well. So if anything, in, in fortunate circumstances goes wrong in the uh, company, the company is liable for those debts, not you individually. You also um, can have multiple shareholders and directors. Um, so that can be uh, a good use for tax planning. Uh, credibility. Some people like to have limited an LTD at the, at, the, at the end of the name. It gives, it gives a, a greater, um, looks better on paper, some people think. And you can also um, potentially get business asset disposable relief when you close the company. Um, so there's some of the advantages. Also, um, I'd just like to touch on that if you draw money out of the company, you can also claim, um, well, everybody's entitled to the first £2,000 of the dividend allowance, which is tax-free. So that is um, a major advantage of uh, having a company and withdrawing dividends. Nice. Yeah, so the the question of whether or not you know um, a limited company um, is a good idea or not is something that we get asked on a regular basis. Um, Rob's touched upon some of the pros there. Um, there are some cons to consider as well, though. It's, it's not all uh, it's not all positive news, unfortunately. Um, one of the main things to consider uh, when starting up a limited company um, in the um, healthcare sector is contributions to the NHS pension scheme. Now, um, if you were to set up a limited company. Unfortunately, the monies that are earned through that limited company are earned in the name of the company and not the individual doctor that's earning them. So as such, you cannot contribute any NHS pension contributions um, in relation to that work. 
Uh, that's kind of ring-fenced, if you like. Uh, that's money that belongs to the company, and as such, you can't make the pension contribution there. The other thing to think about, um, which is a difficult thing for us to talk about as accountants and tax advisors, is the cost of the accountancy services that you're going to require uh, as a limited company. Um, you know, the, essentially, there's increased reporting requirements for a company over an individual self-employed, uh, for example. So a number of the things that you need to file over and above an individual tax return for yourself is a confirmation statement with Companies House uh, to let them know of any changes in the company every year. You need to do a full set of uh, company accounts as well. There's also a corporate CT600 tax return that needs to be filed on an annual basis. And then where relevant, the uh, director's individual tax returns as well. So as you can imagine, the cost of the services uh, involved in running a company, just even from an accountancy point of view, are somewhat higher than they are for an individual. The other problem with uh, um, a company setup, I say problem, for some people it works. You know, we keep harking back to this, you know, it's individual circumstances and because it doesn't work for one person doesn't mean it doesn't work for another. We have a number of corporate clients. Um, but one of the issues is that the money earned as well uh, belongs to the limited company. Uh, it doesn't belong to you, uh, the director of, who has earned the money in the first place. So there's an issue there surrounding extraction of funds. So yes, you pay the attractive rate of 19% corporation tax on your uh, limited company profits, but then unfortunately there's an income tax charge when you're taking the money out of the company. Uh, Rob touched upon the £2,000 uh, dividend allowance, which means you can withdraw the £2,000 tax-free each year, but thereafter there's uh, tax charges. And in a lot of um, cases, without being too presumptuous, a lot of doctors are higher rate taxpayers. And as such, any dividends they take out at that stage, they're going to pay 32.5% income tax on. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is a future prospect, though, is that the corporation tax rate has uh, been well uh, documented, that that's going to, due to rise from 19% to 25% uh, from April 2023. So that's another thing to keep in mind, that yes, 19% does look attractive in comparison to the 40% uh, personal income tax rate, but it's being set to rise again, uh, depending on certain circumstances and levels of earnings of the company. Um, this might be me being a bit cynical, but I'm also of the opinion that the dividend allowance is um, almost a political tool. Uh, and for those of you uh, who have been involved in this for a while, will remember that when it was first introduced, it was £5,000 tax-free per annum. That's already been reduced to £2,000, uh, and I don't think there's any guarantees that it's going to be in place in the future. But uh, I'll let your own uh, political affiliations uh, determine what you think about that. Yeah, uh, let's, let's not get into that, and let's not get into Richard's pension situation, which must just be hideously complicated. Um, so... <laughs> Let's uh, going back. So that's a really good background of all the really complex issues. So going back to Richard's specific case, uh, you know, when you guys advised Richard and met up virtually, um, you know, what did you advise for Richard and why? And Richard, you know, what was your take on it all? So should we start with getting back to what his scenario was? Like, what did you what what does Richard need to do? So, um, memory serves me correctly, Richard's situation was obviously that, that we touched upon earlier, that he was in Canada, but he was wanting to come back to the UK on an ad hoc basis uh, to perform locum work, for want of a better term. 
Um, and he was, uh, as a Canadian uh, non-UK resident, he was having to suffer uh, income tax in Canada on those UK earnings. And he was uh, inquiring about um, almost the tax efficiency of that and whether or not setting up a limited company would be a way of almost, I don't like to use the word sheltering because it, it, it's almost uh, sinister, but to, to look at making a t- more tax efficient way of earning that money in the UK and not suffering too much tax. So we talked about um, obviously the double taxation agreement whereby you can have a credit in uh, Canada for the uh, tax paid in the UK. Um, The other thing to consider, not specific to uh, Richard's case, was that it all depends on the level of earnings that you're going to have uh, in the UK. So we talked about that with Richard. And, you know, if they were at a certain level, if they were high enough, then you could look at a limited company, as we've just discussed. There's a lot of costs involved from an accountancy point of view. And if the level of earnings isn't particularly high, then the benefit of setting up that company probably isn't there from a, from a tax perspective. Um, the other issue that we needed to talk about um, with Richard was the IR35 situation, which again, as with everything else we've discussed, is a bit of a grey area and is quite complex. Um, but there was an argument that maybe some of the trusts involved with Richard wouldn't be comfortable paying into a limited company setup as the responsibility for the IR35 legislation now uh, lies with the employing trust. Um, I think the other issue was um, that there would have been a loss of personal tax allowance. So that would be the case for everyone, uh, not just Richard. Um, if he was to set it up as a, as a limited company, he loses that uh, £12,000 so pounds personal tax allowance and therefore would suffer tax on that element in the UK too. Um, so that they were a couple of the, the scenarios we talked about with uh, Richard, um, but I'm sure he could uh, add some further thought on that. Uh, yeah, that's 100% correct. Um, and unsolicited, but just to say, I found it hugely helpful speaking to BW. And I was, oh, I had three people on my call, which I felt very uh, like, privileged to have. Um, so yeah, it was it was really useful. There's quite a lot of tax stuff that I'm reasonably au fait with already, like not least the residency stuff. But um, this was quite niche and um, yeah, really valued some expert opinion on it. And it was really clear, actually, that Based on my current circumstances, it's not worth going down a route of um, setting up a limited company. Um, the other one that was touched on earlier, but I guess wasn't in the most recent summary, but um, for pension, um, it's often worthwhile for people working across different places to maintain their NHS pension link. And people might be aware there's different scenarios in which you've got to do that, but generally you've got at least five years. You can't have more than a five-year gap between pensionable NHS employment. So for me, that was another factor as well. Um, very likely the trust would have uh, not like uh, uh, applied the IR35 rules and I'd have been uh, taxed for national insurance and, and income tax at, at source anyway. Um, and then most likely actually it wouldn't have even enabled me to avoid any tax in Canada. So uh, it would be a lot of work for little gain for me at least. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. That's really, um, that's really interesting. So sounds like it was super helpful for you. Okay. Brilliant. Um, me and Richard are going to talk about the 
pros and cons of working in Canada now. And I know how busy Robert and Scott are. So thank you so much, Robert and Scott, for your time and expertise on this call. Um, if, if you've got a hideously complex international tax query, I'll, I'll drop uh, Robert and Scott's uh, contact details in the link below because they love really complex international stuff. Right, guys? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. Sorry, yes. Uh, thank you very much for having us on today. Yeah, cheers, Tommy. <laughs> no, well, thanks, thanks, thank you so much for your time. Well, you Take care. Thanks very much. Cheers, now. So, Richard, I mean, um, you know, you're obviously, as you say, more than au fait with um, how tax works and stuff like that. But uh, I'm not surprised that this was, um, you know, you know, too much for for you because I mean that was just hideously complicated, wasn't it? But it sounds like it was it was useful. Yeah, really, really useful. Um, so some of the things discussed before, like it took me a long time reading through it all. People might know, but there's lots of helpful stuff, actually, uh, unusually for tax, but there's quite a lot of good stuff on the HMRC website about how residency works. And at least the UK is very clear at what their criteria are. Um, uh, but yeah, it's quite difficult. And other people might have had this scenario where they're either moving temporarily to do like a year or longer overseas or... Um, or potentially as a longer term move, but it's very difficult to get access to tax advice for another jurisdiction in the country where you live because people just generally don't want to go there. Um, and I did find, yeah, getting used to Canadian tax is a whole other whole other world as well. So yeah, for yeah. this particular scenario, it was really helpful to um, well to have the support of Medics Money and um, BW were great actually. Yeah, I mean, it's what we do. It's why we exist. So um, perfect. So can we talk a bit more about you? And you trained in the UK, and then now you've moved to Canada. So can we talk a bit more about that? Because we get loads of questions about people who want to work in Australia or Canada or New Zealand. And usually we're green with envy about the salary and working conditions. So tell us a bit about how, how your career path so far and how you ended up uh, working in Canada. Yeah, sure. And I've increasingly become like the go-to guy to ask about Canada as well. So you do. there's lots of people who are interested in these opportunities. Um, so I went as a, as, as a, for a fellowship post, um, and it was post-CCT in the setup. It's probably more straightforward to do that with the Canadian system, um, but it would be possible to go earlier in your career. But but normally I'd have thought, thought post-CCT. Uh, and for most of the people I know who've, who've done similar, it's generally been in that, in that setting as well. Um, yeah, so I, the, it came about for a couple of reasons. Well, what, what, well, one was the opportunity, and I, I met some really great people who run the unit where I've been working, and yeah, really wanted to to kind of go and work with them. Um, uh, we probably try not to say the B word too much, but but Brexit was a factor in my decision making about like the UK not being quite the place I thought it was, at least at that point in time. Um, and I also had some some sick leave with burnout earlier in my career, um, and it kind of challenged me to reappraise my relationship with well with the medical medical the job that we do anyway, but um, with the NHS and just to kind of explore what life might be like in other places. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And um, what is life like in Canada as a doctor? What's good? What's bad? Um, I think in many ways things are very similar. So the the people's experiences with seeing patients, what they what the kind of medical problems they have, what um what they expect from doctors, like having a nice, nice rapport and working relationship both with your patients and, and your colleagues, like all of that's very familiar. Um 
some of the lingo is a bit different. So I've had to get used to calling drugs by slightly different names or using slightly different Latin abbreviations for <laughs> medical drug dosing frequencies and things. But I mean, that's all very doable. Um, things that I think are better. So, so the way that Canadian healthcare is structured is quite different to other jurisdictions uh, and different to Australia as well. So there's really um, only the public sector. There's no private sector in Canada. Um, but for any any physician or nurse practitioner or whatever, but anyone, regardless of specialty, pretty much, they contract their services to the, a, single, a single payer. Um, and for every province, um, it's, it's slightly different, actually, which adds to the complexities of life in Canada, because potentially something in British Columbia wouldn't be the same as Ontario to Alberta and so on. Um, which is a, yeah, another world for getting your license and stuff that we might come on to talk about. Yeah. Um, but uh, so the way that as, a, as an independent physician, at least, is that you would see patients do certain things. It might be an operation, be it, I don't know, um, an endoscopic procedure or whatever. And that activity is associated with, with a, a set rate. Um, and that income comes to you. Um, depending on where you work, there's other kind of models too. So there's uh, there's university associated models where it's much more familiar from a UK scenario where you're you're salaried and you have defined duties. Um, and there's increasingly like other models as well, particularly in in general practice or, or family medicine, as they tend to call it, but um, where there's a capitation fee associated as well. Um, and then I guess much like Australia, if you're in certain places which are a bit harder to staff, essentially, there's there's various ways to try and attract people there. Okay, cool. So there's a few things I want to pick up there. You said that you went post-CCT and that would be your recommended way to do it. Why, why is that? Um, because there's not much cross-recognition of of like professional or postgraduate certifications between Canada and the UK, um, it's much more difficult to go, say, say you did foundation program and you went afterwards, the way you'd have to do that would be to get a place. Well, first of all, get your like med, med, like degree recognized. That should be straightforward. Maybe do an English exam, um, get a license to practice medicine and wherever you were trying to go. Um, but the, the training program where you were going would have to match you to a particular uh, a particular program, and there's 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 exams you'd have to do for Canadian exams. There's a, a written exam, and then there's like a practical exam as well before you'd be eligible to even apply for that. Um, and uh, it's quite a competitive world, medicine in Canada, like at, at every level actually. Um, uh, and it, it can be difficult to get what you want. So the scenario where you might decide, I want to go for a year or a couple of years or whatever and do some A&E jobs or, or stuff like that, they do have that to some extent. Uh, they're called kind of clinical trainee posts, but they're sort of more akin to observership posts in, in potentially trust grade posts in, in the UK, but they'd be harder to set up. Um, so in many ways, it's easier to go once you're done and dusted in the UK, or if you're really thinking, actually, maybe Canada's for me, actually, it, it makes more sense to do all of your postgraduate training in Canada or do it again if, if need be. Yeah. And if you're post-CCT, it's easier to just slot right in, right? Uh, 
I don't know. I can't answer that question when there's not a pandemic going on because it's it's not <laughs> been it's not been straightforward, should we say? Um, there there were still exams I had to had to take, um, and and really they the Canadian authorities only recognise your credentials as they call them if you've done. Uh, if you've done if you've done a residency and got fellowship of their rural college, which is like one national body for all specialties, and there's one for for general practice. So for certain specialties, and at the moment at least, it's general practice to some extent, radiology, um, and I think psychiatry too. There's a little bit there's a little bit more cross recognition, um, but I get the feeling it's quite a fluid thing. So a few, maybe a decade ago, there was quite a big influx of South African doctors to Canada. So they, they tend to change the rules when it suits them to have more doctors, I guess. Um, uh, but but yeah, it's not it's not a straightforward scenario at all. Um, particularly if you want to go long term, if you want to go to do to do a fellowship, then it's a fantastic place to go for that, and um, and that's a lot more straightforward actually. Okay, and something else interesting that you said, which sounds very different from the UK, is that. You said, you know, if you do an endoscopy, you get paid for that. So you're saying payment by activity and the, the money goes directly to you. So if you do 10 endoscopies and your colleague does one, you get 10 times the fee. Is that is that how it works or have I misunderstood? No, that, that's pretty much how it works. And again, I've, I've not really, I, I've just been a, a salaried employee thus far as a fellow. Um, and just for, for reference, actually, generally it's a little bit less than than your match pay would be in the uk for that that level but you don't have the same perhaps you don't have the same like out of hours duties like n- nights i've not done since i was a medical registrar in 2019 which has been a, a nice change um so um yeah there, there there are different deductions on top and i guess very much like probably running a uh uh, general practice as a gp gp principal is like you've got to pay pay staff you've got to pay like some of the administration costs um at least where uh like the stuff that i'm aware of it comes off as a, a capitation there's usually a group like uh, say 15 percent, 20 percent of, of uh, is taken off to support um staff who are shared across multiple physicians um and there's different ways of doing it you can be a sole practitioner or join join other groups um i would have thought like certainly for me I wouldn't want to cope with setting up setting up a business as well as uh, setting up a, a new professional practice. Yeah, yeah, it might be biting off more than you can <laughs> chew there. Um, okay, and so you're coming to and fro the UK doing some locums here, which is what created the hideously complex tax situation. But what's your plan long term? Because I guess I'm always interested because you've sampled the Canadian system, you've worked in the UK system. What's your plans and why? Um, so uh, my plan is to go, is to try to get like a permanent substantive job in Canada. Um, there, there's a post that should be advertised imminently, which is uh, all being well, uh, my, my post, um, and that would hopefully start later in the year. Uh, yeah, so that, so I wouldn't like close the door in the UK and I don't know, a lifetimes, anything can happen really, I guess, as the last few years have shown us. So never say never, but, um. The, the reasons for that is is largely kind of down a little bit to that that model but but I feel like um you have a lot more control over your life as a physician in Canada um so for example 
you decide how long you're seeing certain patients for, how many you're going to see in a clinic, um, who needs what kind of interval of follow-up, um, how much time you need for a certain procedure. And that's all booked between you and your patients um, with the support of like a team, like a booking clerk and so on. Um, which to some extent is possible in the UK and maybe it will change in Canada, but it, but it's much more your, you, it feels to me at least you're a, you're a cog within the system and, and you have to jump as high as the system requires of you. Um, so there's that kind of control aspect. Uh, and um, the amount of time you need to work to be financially independent or, or comfortable is probably very different as well. So much like some of your podcasts before about um, people in Australia, um, the average salary in Canada is at least twice the UK. Oh, um, I, knew you were gonna say that. I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> so okay. you can like decide how much you want to work or like decide what's important to you. Um, yeah. Okay. So this is just depressing me because all the good people are leaving. Um, you're leaving, right? And the salary is double, right? Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, it depends very much on what you do, what specialty you're in. Um, but like, I, I looked it up because I thought you might, might might ask. But like the average, so Canadian dollars is about one point seven to the pounds. Yeah. Um, uh, the average. GP will get somewhere between 200, maybe pushing 300,000 Canadian dollars. So, um, and, and could, could be scoped to go higher. And then specialty, it depends on what you're doing. Um, there'll be, there's radiologists who are making millions of dollars. Um, they may not, that may not all end up in their pockets. Um, but an average specialist might earn somewhere between 300 and 500,000 Canadian dollars. But that's like gross income and quite what that looks like in your pocket. I don't know. But um, there's disadvantages like there's no pension provision, really. Um, you, you have to in, ensure your own risks. Um, but uh, you can you can then be in control of that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, a, like a familiar story that uh, the doctors are more in control. You're more in control of your time. You're less rushed. And you get paid more. Um, okay, so basically everyone now wants to move to either Australia or Canada. Actually, one of my patients uh, listens to my podcast, which is a bit weird, but they were really worried that I was going to move to Australia. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to move to Australia um, or Canada, but it does sound really, really tempting. And I can totally understand why you did that. So I'm really interested to talk to people like yourself uh, who have seen two different healthcare systems from the inside, you know, and you've experienced both. And so it's obvious which system you would rather work in as a doctor for what you've just said, but you know, it can't all be good news. Give me some bad news about the Canadian system, please, because the salary's double, the work's less. I just, <laughs> yeah. Um, what that uh, I'm a big fan of the NHS. I've worked, worked for over decades. Um, there's a lot of things that it does better than other places. Um, so uh, coordinated public health screening um, actually kind of targets on wait time. So if you're a patient in a Canadian emergency, they'd call it, but emergency department, um, you'll routinely wait hours and hours and hours, uh, unless it's a, like a dire emergency. Um, there's 
wait list of two years for hip replacement. So by no means is it a perfect system from a patient perspective. Um, uh, and then just some of the way things are coordinated, because every province does stuff slightly differently, there's, there's, there's a bit more variation perhaps. Um, and there's plenty of Canadians who will cross the border to the US and pay to have their healthcare there. Um, but like in terms of, well, it's certainly for the people I've worked with, like nurses, physicians, everyone really, like they deliver fantastic patient care. Um, and yeah, I, I, like much like you can get, can get in great NHS centres as well, but that sort of perhaps maybe the, the time that's available for things is maybe a little bit more in, in Canada. Um, and then the support services are better. So one of the big things in, in gastroenterology certainly is like access to psychological support. Um, it's rare. There's about two or three centres in the UK you can get it. Um, but we're lucky to have access to that dietetics. Like there lots of the support services, which patients benefit from to some extent can be easier to access. Um, maybe not if you live in, in rural Ontario, but, but, um, if you live in a bigger center, th those things are available. Yeah. Awesome. And I think that's just a common theme. You know, if I could change one thing about being an NHS GP, it would just be to have more time with my patients because then I could, you know, I get 10 minutes. Um, yeah, if I had more time, I could just, I could do more for them and I could explain more and spend more time with them and it would be less rushed. And, uh, that's a common factor that almost everybody says they just want a bit more time and a bit more autonomy to, to, you know, to do what we do as professionals to make the best decisions for our patients and not be, uh, hamstrung by targets or being pushed around by, uh, managers or otherwise like that. But, uh, okay. I mean, thank you so much for coming on today because, uh, this is going to be so useful to so many people because you've got a hideously complex tax situation, which we've dealt with. So that's great. Um, but I'm really fascinated by people like yourselves who do go to other healthcare systems. And, um, I always like to end podcasts like these with, um, imagine that you had a time machine. I won't embarrass you by asking you how many years it was since you left med school. Cause I think you left med school around the same time as I did. So let's not mention it, <laughs> but if you could go back in a time machine and tell your F1 self a few things, what would you do? Uh, so I, I think my answer, to this is going to be similar to ones that others have given actually, which is to, to not, not worry. So, um, you don't have to follow a certain path. Um, it's okay to be your own person and find your own route through, uh, and actually in the long run, most people will respect you for it and, and you'll hopefully be a, a, a better position for it better in, in many ways. So, um, yeah, I, I think I often ask this question when you see like uh, people interviewing for med school and you think, would I, would I still do the same? Would I be on the same journey again? It's hard to know really for sure. But um, I think it's a fantastic journey. Um, I, I really love my job um, and I feel that this gives me the way to do it in the way that I want to do it. Um, yeah, so pursue it, but don't worry to be your own person along the way amazing amazing advice thank you so much for your time thank you for just sharing your story and everything like that it's so helpful to the listeners of this podcast and um that's how you found us and hopefully other people will find us as well and we can all work together to help each other make better financial decisions i know you've got a ferry to catch so i do not want to be responsible for you missing that um so thank you so much for your time richard and take care